Vitoplasm episode 91, The Princess Bride. So over lockdown, we formed a weekly movie nightclub where we uh, vote for and then watch one film a week. Um, it's mostly on Netflix. We've done this for a year now. And with the anniversary coming up, we went for the category of Stone Cold Classics. And of those classics, The Princess Bride came at the very top of the pile, closely followed by Aliens, by the way. So this episode, I'm going to cover The Princess Bride, but I'm not only going to talk about the film, which was released in 1987. I'm also going to go back to the original novel from 1973, which, which was written by William Goldman, who also wrote the script for the movie. Now, just a few years earlier, he'd written Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and in 1974, he wrote Marathon Man, which was then made into a movie with Dustin Hoffman and Laurence Olivier. And he also did scripts for The Step of Wives and A Bridge Too Far, and you know, read the Wikipedia page. Normally, I do a synopsis followed by themes and then other media, and I'm going to stick to that format, but a full synopsis, I think, is a bit redundant. So I'm going to do a kind of meta-synopsis where... I'm going to talk about the framing around the story that's told in the film, as well as some differences in the book. And after that, I have some very specific things to say about fencing and Inigo Montoya and about Florin as another Ruritania. So the synopsis or meta synopsis. Here we go. In the book, it's not the grandfather reading the book to a sick grandson, which is, you know, Peter Falk and Fred Savage. Um, it's a bit more metafictional. Goldman describes his own father as a Florinese immigrant who would read an abridged version of The Princess Bride by S. Morgenstern, the famous Florinese author, to him as a child. Particularly, he read this to William Goldman when uh, Goldman was sick in bed with pneumonia. Uh, so in later life, Goldman then reconnects with S. Morgenstern's work, The Princess Bride, when he needs an exciting present for his 10-year-old son. And he remembers how he loved the book and how his father read it to him. So he hunts down, at great expense, an English language copy. It's been out of print for decades, apparently. Um, it's hard enough to get a copy in the original Florinese, let alone English. And he gives this book to his son, who doesn't really get on with it. And the reasons being that the book has huge and very dull sections about Florinese history and the royal family and other things that his, his dad basically skipped over whilst reading to him in bed. His dad turned the book into this adventure novel when, actually, it's a satire on Florinese society as much as anything. Uh, this framing device is much simplified in the film, but it's obviously the same concept, and you know, with this additional framing removed because you know they, it makes a much tighter film. So some of the differences are the way Prince Humperdinck is described as this uh, massive barrel-chested warrior hunter who he owns a zoo of death in which he keeps dangerous animals to hunt and later it's it's that place where Wesley is incarcerated and subjected to the machine that's a uh, Camp Rugen's machine that sucks away life now Inigo Montoya and Physique both get backstories which does actually make sense of some of Vizzini's dialogue in the film. For example, there's this seeming non-sequitur of physic being, you know, do you want to go back to being unemployed in Greenland? Um, this is actually explained in the book. Um, otherwise, it doesn't deviate from what we know of the characters at all, because obviously, same author. We do get more of a backstory for Buttercup, including her parents, her relationship with Wesley, and even a visit from Camden Countess Regen, who bring Buttercup to the attention of Prince Humperdinck. And there are a few other minor differences. Um, for, ex for instance, there's a thieves' quarter rather than the thieves' forest. It's not really of any consequence. Um, 
the um, the rescue of Wesley after he's been had all his life sucked away by Inigo and Physique um, means that the two of them have to brave the zoo of death, which has you know several stories that they have to go down through. And there's a bit more detail around there about all the animals that Prince Humperdinck has acquired over the years. Um, there's also slightly more detail around Miracle Max's backstory and the magic pill that resurrects Wesley works slightly differently. Um, most notably, the ending is very much more cliffhangery. You know, the, the four of them ride away on four white horses, which, by the way, feature early on in the story because they're the four mounts used by Humperdinck on hunts. But he, he basically swaps between them, so one of them never gets tired and he can hunt for hours. Um, but, you know, it's not certain that they ride away to freedom. Uh, they're basically pursued by Humperdinck and um, Yellen. Oh, yeah, that's his spymaster. Um but then the important thing that's in the novel, um, all the way through the novel, there's these italicised comments from Goldman as Goldman on what he's cut out of the novel and why. You know, there's, there's like these ridiculous long-winded formalities or packing excessively for a very short journey, all of which is this satirical comment on the Florinese state. Um, Goldman even refers to a professor of Florinese history who has been advising him on the satirical nature of Morgenstern's works. Um, I would like to also note that the dialogue of the Archbishop with his Mowage speech is right there in the book, although obviously Peter Cook obviously brings it to life. Um, overall, in fact, the casting for the entire film is phenomenal. Um, one of many reasons why it's such a success and such a classic. Now, here's the interesting thing. We get to the 25th anniversary. My copy of The Princess Bride is printed from 1999. Um, and that's also the version I've got electronically now. And um, there's a coda to it, which is Buttercup's Baby. And this is a really unexpected twist um, because it brings about a new element uh, in kind of the metafiction. Basically, the Morganstern estate, uh, I mean, this is, this is a section that prefaces the first chapter of the abridgment of Butterup's Baby that was done by Goldman, the only chapter he did. Um, and he talks about how the Morganstern estate wanted an abridgment to the sequel uh, to bring more attention to the Morganstern name in the English language, uh, the sequel being Buttercup's Baby. And, and Gold, Goldman, first of all, he thinks he's being approached to write the abridgment. Then he realises that they just need his consent to let Stephen King do it instead. Now, Goldman wrote the screenplay for the 1990 adaptation of Misery. So he, he and King already have a relationship and uh, they actually get together to discuss the abridgment and, and what's going on with it. And they find out that the Morgenstern estate has apparently lied to them both and tried to manipulate things to get Goldman to give up his rights and get King to write the book. Um, all this comes out in the meeting, uh, you know, Apparently, King only agreed to do it because uh, they they said that Goldman had refused. Um, so in that meeting, um, King also then talks about what uh, Goldman did with the previous abridgments, and he said, "Oh yeah, I really like the film," but it, you know, he tellingly he didn't say, "I really like the original book." And the objection he has is that Goldman removed so much of it, you know. And what happens next is King makes several remarks about real Florinese landmarks. There really is a Cliffs of Insanity. Uh, there is an academy which uh, is significant to Buttercup's upbringing. Um, there are other places that Goldman just cut out of the story. As a, that There is a fire swamp. 
And King really feels that Goldman trampled over Morgenstern's original novel by omitting all these these details. And for that reason, King wants to do the next abridgment to, in his words, do it right. But they come to this agreement that Goldman will do the first chapter and see how things work out. So the very last portion of the book is that first chapter and it's awesome stuff the first chapter is titled physic dies and you know goldman immediately writes some italicized notes as saying that this is obviously a classic morgenstern fake out physic isn't really going to die is he um it's it's really interesting as well and you know the first chapter includes this flash forward to physic pursuing someone up a mountain this person uh i think it's called the madman this person has abducted buttercup and wesley's daughter a uh, daughter called waverly um then there's an aside about inigo and his mental training under a master called piccolo so there's there's lots of details in the initial uh in the original novel about inigo's training training under different masters but this is some new aspect where he's uh, he's training his mind as much as his body then it cuts back to the desperate flight from Prince Humperdinck and his spy master Yellen. Um, whilst Inigo's wound reopens and Wesley slips back into death um, and uh, Buttercup's horse throws a shoe and they then manage to get to the good ship Revenge and into the Florin Channel and they sail through a whirlpool to One Tree Island and Buttercup gives birth and then we flash forward to Physic falling again. Yeah. And this is a kind of entertaining alternative version of the original story, and it ends on an even worse cliffhanger than the original. But by now it's a device, and I think as readers we have faith that somehow things will work out fine. So I thought that it was very worthwhile, and I encourage you to read all the way to the end if you haven't read it. But I want now to move on to the themes, um, and I've got two of them. The first one is about Ruritanian fantasy. So Florin has gone from being a fictional setting and the origin of Morgenstern's original story to an actual Ruritania in the 25th anniversary version. You know, Goldman basically recounts travelling back to Florin City via a connecting flight in Brussels. Apparently it's quite difficult to fly there. Um, he visits the thieves' quarter. He sees the room where Inigo finally killed Count Rugen on the castle tour. He sees the Cliffs of Insanity in the Fire Swamp. So in the original book, we accept that Florin is a real place and that Goldman is a second-generation immigrant, but we still assume that this is a fairy story. And suddenly, there's the hint that these may have an actual historical root. We don't know whether Wesley and Buttercup and Inigo and Physique and all the other characters have roots in historical myth, or if the locations in Florin were used by Morgenstern for his fantasy and are now you know, celebrated by, by the tourist trade. Uh, were miracle men and their witches a thing, for example? Uh, I like to think that, you know, that's part of actual Florinese culture. But anyway, this suddenly shifts the tone of the entire book in a way I found really exciting. Now, we've covered Ruritania before when talking about The Prisoner of Zender and Pale Fire, and I talked about games involving fugitives from a fictional country taking root in our world. And I think this has the same opportunities. In the narrative written by Goldman, he is the son of a man from a fictional place who married a real-world woman. He carried with him a book of fiction written by an author who never really existed, and he read the best bits out to his son, who in turn came to believe the stories. And when he reawakened to the idea of the Princess Bride, it was almost impossible to find a copy, 
Um, so he effectively brought the book back to life by writing the abridgment. And he did that from a point of not really believing Florin was a real place, certainly never having visited before. But he then travelled back to Florin, and this affirmed to him that these places are real. And then we get, you know, get to talk about what Stephen King's role is is in this narrative. You know, he knows a lot about Florin, apparently. He feels that Goldman's omissions of some parts in the abridgment do it a disservice. He complains about how Goldman omitted things like the, the Academy, you know, that, that Buttercup studied at. Um, and he asked Goldman why Goldman never visited Florin in preparation for the abridgment. I almost think that Stephen King isn't Stephen King here. He's he's kind of like sort of Oberon or, or you know, a fairy king or something, uh, even a, a projection of Goldman's originating from this uh, fantasy, not quite real place. And what we're witnessing in the book is a kind of awakening as far as Goldman is concerned. I, I feel this is all very changing the dreaming, you know, this kind of rediscovery of an ancient and fictional place brought back to life by earnest belief and the desire to tell a story and to relive a fantasy on Goldman's part. I'm not sure about a role-playing game, but it would make a neat documentary. So let's treat Florin as a Ruritania. That is, a fictional place set in a real world. We don't know when the events in The Princess Bride take place. Um, the style's kind of late 17th century based on the fencing, which I'll, I'll talk about in a moment. Um, but Vizzini references Australia being full of convicts and transportation to Australia didn't start until 100 years later. Um, and I'm not taking issue with this discrepancy. It's fine for me and it works for a narrative where someone else is reading an imperfect pulp novel to a young audience. You know, what's a hundred years back or forward when there are sword fights and fire swamps and miracle men and bishops who say mowage? Um, my point here is that Florin and Gilda are places out of time. They are fictional locations that are untouched by external history. You know, Florin definitely exists to fictional William Goldman and fictional Stephen King, but it doesn't have to obey any natural laws. Perhaps back in Florin to this day, the carrying of the rapier is commonplace, as is the employment of miracle men. And based on the ideas I had for Pale Assassins, which was based on Pale Fire, characters like the Dread Pirate Roberts and others could go away from Florin into the real world and not fade away, so long as they believed in Florin and came back. And on returning, they would regain their Florinese sensibilities about larger-than-life action and adventure, rapier fencing and magic and miracles and so forth. Now, um, I think it would be a big stretch to extrapolate all of this from the novel and the film, um, but what Goldman writes in the Coda in the 25th anniversary version makes it kind of possible. So I'm going to propose a setup and a backstory, um, just going in sequence. Firstly, S. Morgenstern is a fictional author who wrote The Princess Bride, which is a satire on the real politics of a fictional country, Florin, which is at war with another fictional country, Gilda. Now, somehow, a person from Florin emigrated from the fictional world into our world. This is exactly the same premise I proposed for Pale Assassins, where fictional people flee a fictional country to settle in a real world. And as a result, they're stalked by assassins from the fictional country who want them either to return or disappear. 
Now, I will want to mention that other people have had this idea as well. I'm pretty sure that Steve Dempsey wrote a drama system scenario involving fictional characters escaping from the British Library and renting a flat somewhere in London. You know, maybe if he can comment further if he's tuning in. Um, there's also sort of horror fiction precedents, of course, like John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness, which is a rip-off of Jonathan Carroll's The Land of Laughs. Uh, there's even an argument for The King in Yellow being Ruritanian, and we've covered those in past episodes, uh, and I'll link them in the show notes. But anyway, um, okay, moving on. Uh, this immigrant, maybe one of several, settles down in America and has a family. When his children are of the right age, he introduces them to Florinese myth, which is entirely artificial, but because he brings it to life, he becomes a real part of their heritage. Many immigrant families do this, and over time, the novel becomes popularised. Now it's embedded in the Western zeitgeist and it becomes a popular belief, or you know, maybe to use different language, a conspiracy. I guess I should also mention Neil Gaiman's American Gods in that case. But anyway, let's say that this belief means you can now visit Florin and see all the weird places, treat the elements in Morgenstern's book as having an historical basis. This naturally reinforces Florin as a real place. But since Florin is based on a number of different historical elements and a particular genre, it doesn't have to mirror the rest of the 20th or 21st century. You can travel to Florin and get involved in rapiduels, seek out miracles and so on. It's kind of like uh, Westworld in that it could be a theme park that's potentially lethal. But it's going to also attract a certain kind of tourism, including one kind that actually seeks out miracles to change the appellant's fate in the real world, you know, to overcome death or find riches or, or similar. Now, there is a small problem of how do you export that miracle to the rest of the world. Um, you know, let's say you had the miracle man save your life. Your continued survival becomes a matter of belief. Really then, I think this is how banality should be handled in changing the dreaming which is something we mentioned in the previous episode on Invisible Cities. So I think there's a, a lot of things that you could do with that as this sort of artificial fantasy world. Um, mainly miles away from the fairy story, much more, I don't know, unknown armies, I guess. Right then. So that was the first thing I wanted to talk about, Ruritania. The second thing I want to talk about is Inigo Montoya. I have some things to say about Inigo Montoya. His fencing and fencing in general. Uh, during the iconic scene at the Cliffs of Insanity, Inigo and Wesley duel not only with swords, but with dialogue. Uh, he says, are you using Bonetti's defence against me, huh? I thought it prudent, given the rocky terrain. Naturally, you expect, expect me to attack with Capoferro. Naturally, but I find that Thibaut cancels out Capoferro, don't you? Unless the enemy has studied his gripper, which I have. Uh, we all know and love this scene. It's accompanied by all manner of crazy acrobatics. It's very silly. And at the same time, completely wonderful and beloved by fences, historical and otherwise worldwide. There's actually a YouTube video of Dave Rawlings of the London Longsword Academy critiquing 10 fight scenes from The Witcher, Game of Thrones and The Princess Bride. Uh, and he says this of The Princess Bride. This is the best fight scene ever in any film ever. The fencing in it is completely irrelevant. It's part of a narrative. It's not meant to overwhelm you. And that, I think, is perfectly put, Dave. I recommend watching that video, and I think there's also a follow-up as well. I'll link them in the show notes. But these are my comments. First, some technical comments about time and place. And this may seem strange 
uh, given that um, I've just talked about how it doesn't matter if it shifts back and forth 100 years, but I still think there's some things that are worth saying, um, mostly about the, the representation of fencing on the screen. The swords that they're using in the movie are the classic swept hilt rapiers that look cool, but the, the length of the blades is shorter than the uh, you know early 17th century patterns. So it, there's an argument that they could be late 17th century um, in a transitional period by you know transitioning between the rapier to the small sword. This is probably in the film because they're German Schlager blades fitted to reproduction hilts. Um, but also, you can't do this back and forth Errol Flynn blade-on-blade action so well with a longer blade. There is um, a long-running debate amongst historical fencers, particularly if you're in the noughties ever on Sword Forum. You know, that's namely that of single-time versus a double-time action. Um, so just to explain what that means, in a double-time action, your defensive action comes first, you know, you, you uh, parry, and then you do a riposte as a second action. And, you know, this is the basis for modern sport fencing rules as well, uh, based on priority. So uh, the priority is basically whoever straightened their arm first is deemed to be the attacker and will be awarded the point by the judges, even if the defender also sticks out their arm and stabs the person coming in. And they, the, the defender, in order to take priority, has to parry, which is no more than a touch in sport fencing, and then riposte. In a single-time action... Which is what you'd have, say, around uh, you know around sixteen hundred with um, Saviolo and contemporaries. Uh, you basically put your opponent's weapon aside and thrust or cut into their attack at the same time, so your defence and attack are in one time. And I think this is also somewhat true of longsword, but I really don't know much about longsword, even less than I know about rapier. Um, but the single-time action is bread and butter in the period of long-bladed rapiers around 1600. And the reason it's common is simply that the long rapier is too long to parry and then riposte in good time. Yeah, there are other factors at play when you're fencing. Um, you know, the relative time it takes to move with the feet, for example. Later weapons can parry and riposte more quickly because they're shorter. Now, that's, that's not to say there isn't a crossover. You do get single time actions or you know, contretemps mentioned in uh, you know, the 18th century smallsword of Liancourt and others. Um, so the fight in the Princess Bride is how accurate is it in in that time? I'm I'm really not sure. I'm a sort of I, I was going back and forth in my head saying this is uh, actually represented well. I I don't know. Um, but what I think, and, and particularly after hearing Dave's comments, I think it is intentionally a pastiche of swordplay. The technique is subordinate to the storytelling. Um, and the fight choreographer was Bob Anderson, who also worked on Lord of the Rings, Highlander and Star Wars and other films. And all of those films featured fights which were designed to fit into the story. You know, epic, larger than life. So it's a character of his choreography that fits in and enhances this kind of story. Now, compare this with the work of William Hobbs, who, who I actually, I, I got the, the honour of hearing him speak at the Royal Armouries once. Um, he did Dangerous Liaisons, uh, the final fight with um, between Valmont and, I can't remember the other guy. Anyway, he did Dangerous Liaisons uh, and The Duelists and The Count of Monte Cristo. And those fights feel to me to be much more serious and more vital. I think they have a different signature to the fights. Um, bear in mind, those are also later period fencing but even so it has a completely different character uh, another example tony wolf uh, did bernard breslau's hammer fight scene in hawk the slayer 
you know, all of these choreographers will have been able to, you know, flex their style to suit the script and the director, but I would all expect them to have come from a particular place. Uh, if you and if you were to have, say, William Hobbs direct the fight with long rapiers with single time attacks, you'd probably have a totally different fight in the Princess Bride. It would be much darker and much nastier, and there'd be a lot more at stake. And I really think that Bob Anderson captured the essence of this, you know, fabulous sword fight from a much loved story being read to a kid by his grandfather. Uh, you know, it's not just a fight, it's an ideal of a particular kind of fight, and it deserves all the love for that. I will note, though, that later on, there is a scene where Inigo slays four guards in a couple of seconds, and it ends with his really nice uh, Passata Soto killing the last guard, and then he squares off with Count Rujan and says his line, and Rujan turns and flees in a move that's actually called Cobb's Traverse. At least we call it that. Uh, that. That scene felt a little bit more rapier-like to me, although it was still sort of a lot of whippy blade stuff. Um, now, the next thing I want to talk about is the dialogue on the list of fencing masters. And in the film, it's a dialogue, because it needs to be. But in the book, it's all in Inigo's head, and he starts by noting that the man in black is using a gripper, so he attacks with Capoferro, which Wesley counters with Tebow, and so on. Now, some of the names are mixed around. Uh, he also mentions other masters like Fabrice and remarks how Wesley's style is like McBone, which I think is a reference to Donald McBain. You know, later in the final fight with Count Rugen, by the way, uh, he also mentions McPherson, um, who I also think is McBain, mainly because he's recalling advice from McPherson on how to manage his wounds in battle. Donald McBain didn't really write a fencing treatise. It was more a list of dirty tricks and other survival techniques, like jamming your fist into an open wound, which is what he does when Count Rugen gets him in the belly with a thrown dagger. Anyway, what, what Inigo is doing is listing in his head all the fancy moves from different masters in an attempt to get some advantage over Wesley. But Wesley is just too good. I rather think that Wesley doesn't have any great fencing knowledge. He's just incredibly driven to succeed, which is why his style looks like the survivalist McBone. So Inigo is playing mental chess, trying to dredge up any technique that could get an advantage. And uh, martial arts aside, there's a, there's a fashion in martial arts generally about who has the largest number of special techniques with the most exotic names. And the masters can all have secret techniques that they teach the student who can pay. And you can imagine Inigo's gone around the world collecting them like Pokemon. But there's also this spiritual component. Um, when at the end Inigo is spurred on to defeat the Count by his memory of McPherson, it's almost as if that master is inhabiting his head and, and berating him for giving up and driving him on. And, and I like this idea of... Um, I like this idea of being inhabited by all your previous masters. I think it's actually quite gameable, and I'm, I'm actually working on design based on that right now. And in the book, you know, Inigo is actually referred to as a wizard, which means somebody who surpasses even that of a fencing master. Um, so in the very true sense of Vancian magic, all of these fence tricks and advice from masters are occupying his brain, and he calls upon them as needed to get the job done. I've always fancied running a game where all the characters are masters of fence from different schools, and the thing that makes them different is going to be the different masters they've studied under, which makes the lineage of their school and the special secret bots they know. Their bots are a particular term for the special thrusts and, and everything that are unstoppable but secret. Um, 
you know, even the philosophy of fencing they ascribed to. These masters, the ones we know, um, were real people, obviously, and just like any experts, they had opinions on each other. And they occasionally trash-talked each other in print. Um, George Silver talked about Saviolo and his students, um, and then Swetnam tried to argue against Silver's principles, uh, not in a particularly re respectful way, by the way. Um, and later, Sir William Hope had some fairly harsh things or sarcastic things to say about Liancourt. And this is all there in their various treatises. You can find this, um, but obviously it's quite obscure. Uh, now, of course, when you have cults of personality, you will get blind adherence to one master over another, and that's how you get bad fencing masters still making a living. Um, I do admit on falling on one side of the debate, it's it's Hope as opposed to Lancor, it's Silver as opposed to Saviolo. Um, I do have technical reasons for that, uh, rather than ideological, but um, ideology does form part of it as well, and we have to accept that we have our own biases. Anyway, I want to talk about combat system design and the way that fights are conducted in role-playing games. So here are my opening points. First of all, the shorter the fight, the more dangerous it seems. And by short, we mean the number of exchanges that happen, number of passes. And the reason it's more dangerous is because the stakes of each step in the fight are so much higher. Now, if, you, if you were playing and you said, I want to fight this enemy, and I said, okay, you roll once. If you roll well, you win. If you roll badly, you die. Now, even if you had a PC with 90% or better skill, you'd probably still pause a moment and say, you know, do I really want to do this if I've got a 1 in 10 chance of dying? Um, Christoph Amberger in The Secret History of the Sword uh, writes about how a fencer's demeanour completely changes between sal play and potentially deadly duels. You know, people are a lot less forward and more reluctant to engage makes sense um, now in role-playing games obviously we don't perceive risk we don't perceive stakes but um, also the system is such that you don't just do it in one role um, you rely on information coming in about the fight that allows you to continually assess risk versus you know that the risk of staying in the fight versus fleeing and if you if you don't have all of that and all of a sudden you, you roll the die and then bang, you're dead, out of the game. Uh, you could feel cheated by the whole exchange. Um, it doesn't mean that it's not reasonable to subordinate a whole process to a single role. Uh, you know, we do this for lots of other skill roles, even for quite complicated processes. And you can argue that in many cases the stakes aren't the same for those other kinds of roles. You know, if you fail library use, that doesn't shut the whole game down. Oh. Uh, wait a minute, bad example. Um, and that's why gumshoe exists, of course. A uh, different example. If you were walking in a minefield and you failed an alertness check and you stepped on a mine and got turned into pink mist, you wouldn't feel that that was particularly fair. Um, or let's choose a non-violent example. If you needed to negotiate passage on a freighter to another system to get to vital trade talks and you failed so you couldn't participate in the scenario, that wouldn't be fair. It's reasonable, but not really fair. It, it breaks the social contract between player and GM. Now, combat's different from all those other examples because it has so much support in your average system. You, you have attrition of resources like fatigue and hit points. You have armour and other things that will skew things in your favour whilst not actually affecting the base role. Uh, in other words, you have lots of little incremental barriers to screwing up 
Whether this is good or bad, I think is a philosophical argument, but it's undeniable that there's a massive weight of rules devoted to a very small area of activity. Well, unless you make it a big area of activity, if it's a very commonplace thing, then that's the game you're playing. But I wanted to talk through a couple of examples of role-playing games. The first one is Lace and Steel. And this was designed by Paul Kidd, who's now a successful author. And the dueling systems in this game use a special deck of cards. And uh, dueling includes physical fencing, social fencing, and also magical duels between sorcerers. There's a, a sort of a late alternate 17th century, uh, and there's a lot of magic. But actual fireball casting sorcerers are really rare, and they're usually used as field artillery on, on the field of battle. Um, and often each side will have their sorcerer, and when two sorcerers meet, they end up having an elemental duel. It's all very exciting. Um, the effect of having fencing as a separate minigame is that it frames duels in a really cool way that makes the whole exchange quite tense, but doesn't take you out of the story. In fact, it's often quite interesting as a spectator, and duels don't last too long. You, you have this ongoing exchange of initiative back and forth according to the seats of the cards, who won the last attack. And this playing rounds of cards really paces the game nicely, so it functions like a, a choreographed fight in that the audience can see the direction the fight is going, and the system has a nice balance of randomness and tactics. So this, this back and forth really emulates the back and forth you see from late 17th century onward, at least, you know, what's in films. So poor kid apparently is a sport fencer, or was a sport fencer. Um, you know, much like Roger Zelazny uh, was also a bit of a fencer, and that's why a lot of his fighting in Amber is drawn out with descriptions of feints and blade-on-blade -blade action. Um, but anyway, this is the kind of combat system I would expect a classical fencer to develop, and I think it's really good. The system has a lot of other things to recommend it as well, and I would certainly choose it if I wanted to emulate The Princess Bride in tone. The best thing is I thought it was out of print, but it's not. You can get it on DriveThruRPG. You can get it uh, for $5 plus $3 for the um, the only scenario I think there is, Castle Cartel, which I've played through, and that's really good. So that's Lace and Steel. Now, for a bit of contrast, I want to talk about The Riddle of Steel by Jacob Norwood. And this is a very traditional game with some very specific mechanics. Um, but I believe it was really well received in the Forge era of game design. Now, I've only read the system, not played it. But if Lace and Steel is the kind of game a classical fencer would write, this is the kind of game a medieval longsword artist would write. And that's what Norwood is. Uh, it comes from the armour, and he studied under John Clements. Um, the combat basically revolves around choosing a particular stance and then rolling initiative to see who's the first mover in exchange. Um, there's a system of buying initiative, I think, uh, so you get to move first. The most standout part, which I, I liked, but it was a bit weird, um, is that in combat, both players, or, or player and referee, get a white die and a red die to roll for who goes first. I think it's to roll who goes first. In each round, they show a die at the same time Red is for attack and white is for defence. So if both if both people pick white, nothing happens because they're both waiting for the other to act. If both people pick red, both attack. And that's kind of interesting. And things do get awfully messy if both people try to attack at once, as you might expect. And all of this feels very in keeping with medieval martial arts and very true to my knowledge of... Um, the the habit of, of contretemps and the exchange thrusts and also if you watched him a longsword you'll know there's a certain amount of adopting distance stances while circling each other and then one or both attack uh, i do like it in principle 
However, this game's really rather bogged down with combat options. So it's got several kinds of uh, points. Uh, it's got where to aim attacks. It's got different kinds of weapons and so on. And I'm sure that if you wanted to all play a game where everyone got into fights a lot, it could be quite satisfying if you like that tactical element. I struggle to see how you get much else done in a game like that, though. Um, honestly, though, it's probably no worse than Mithras or GURPS for Crunch, and I'm sure people who have invested time to learn this system will make it work. Um, for design cues, I would certainly take note of the stances and the initiative. Stances in particular, whilst gimmicky, can add a lot of flavour. You know, say your martial school is known for a particular stance in battle. That's another way to differentiate your warrior and a party of warriors. Now, one last note I have about the red and white dice. This is a metagame. It's much like Ace and Steel's cards, where at least in part it's the player against player trying to get advantage for their character. And I'm fine with that in each game. I don't think it takes you out of the game, but it does add a layer where player skill becomes a factor. And some people don't care for that, uh, just as they don't care for social games where the player's ability to socialise has an effect on social interactions rather than the character's ability. Anyway, um, The Riddle of Steel is actually out of print, I think, uh, which is a shame because it's a niche product and it would be nice if you could just go out and get it. As for Tome, if Place and Steel were the Princess Bride, uh, this, I guess, would be Game of Thrones. Now, the last game I want to talk about is Burning Wheel, and it's awful. Um, I really wanted to love Burning Wheel for its life paths and its beliefs, instincts and traits, and the combat which also makes for the duel of wits. You know, combat on paper in Burning Wheel looks really interesting. It's divided into three volleys where you pick three separate actions against your opponent, who does likewise, and then you resolve them. Um, you know, the problem is that, as a friend described it, it turns into this game of rock, paper, scissors, where you're trying to guess the approach of the enemy three moves ahead and guess the intent of the referee. And not only is this a meta game which takes you out of the story... It also fails to provide the incremental tactics that most people expect from a conduct system. And, and you know, guess what? Uh, most people who actually fence would expect as well. In a fight, you adapt at every moment to what your opponent does. You, know, you don't blindly follow a sequence into combat based on no information from your opponent, unless you're an idiot or suicidal. Now, there is an argument for using this system to emulate Inigo Montoya's mental chess of Agrippa versus Capofaro versus Tebow, but the scope and range of options in Burning Wheel is so vast and with so many steps within each exchange that need the rolling of dice, that it could never work that way. You know, th there are nods actually in the, in the text to medieval martial systems, which I do appreciate, but overall this reads like a system written by someone who has either consulted with a medieval martial artist, or read a few treatises on their own, and didn't understand a damn thing. I do not think that Luke Crane understands martial arts or, or dramatic presentation, or even what people enjoy about role-playing games, quite frankly. Um... Anyway, not a good example. So last, I want to tell you about the best combat system I ever played and why it's so good and what I'm basically trying to develop out of it. It was from a homebrew system I played in the early 90s in the Three Rivers game by a guy called Chris Tompkins. I don't know if it was his original idea or cleverly adapted from someone else or even from a game I haven't played, but it's very simple. Basically, all characters have a skill called combat, and this isn't about hitting people with a weapon, it's about how well you take control of the space between yourself and the opponent. All you do is roll an opposed combat skill roll, and the winner gets the initiative. They can then either make the attack or store up that attack for a stronger blow if they win again the next round. 
something that's called the setting up their attack or setting their attack, I think. You know, it's basically aiming. And the opponent can only defend. Now, making, making the attack still needs a skill roll to attack or defend, but they're not in the sort of 90% ranges. I think they were much, much lower, which made it less certain you're actually going to get a successful parry. So the genius of this system is how it manages to capture the essence of people circling each other and looking for an opening without lots of metagames involving cards or counting action points, which take you out of the combat. And in my view, it does take the best bits of the exchanges of initiative in both Lakes and Steel and the Riddle of Steel. But because it doesn't fixate on a one-to-one -one duel, it allows you to manage big fights and multiple fights. Um, it allows you to do fights with non-human threats as well, when most dueling systems assume two individuals of human proportions, and anything outside that starts to stretch the imagination. So I'm designing a new game about fencing masters living in a Cyclopean city, and I start from this foundation. Uh, the plan is then to build in secret bots, uh, fencing schools, and other bits to differentiate between a group of warrior characters. Um, and to make the character into their fencing curriculum vitae, all the schools that they've studied with, and therefore the people who they met whilst they were studying, the bits of the establishment they touched upon and that. Um, but crucially, I'd separate this idea of controlling combat and initiative from actually making strikes against an opponent. Based on my experience, this is an acceptable model. So I'm writing it down, it'll come shortly. Um, Oh, one last thing about initiative. I find that it's not what a lot of people think it is. So I'm going to say this. Initiative does not exist outside measure. It doesn't matter who goes first when you're outside fighting distance. At least not as far as the fights go. That's probably something to discuss later. So as usual, the last bit of the show is going to be a few media recommendations. Um... First, role-playing games. You can get Lace and Steel, so check it out. I'll put a link in the show notes. It's really great. Uh, I mean, it's not perfect, but it does something that I don't think any other role-playing game I know does. Um, I've enthused about it in the past, and it's cheap. Uh, and it's um, illustrated by Donna Barr, which, is, which in itself is fantastic. Next, staying with the swashbuckling theme, a couple of film recommendations, if you like that kind of thing. Um, the first one is Le Bossu, or On Guard, and it's from 1997, which is an adaptation of the 1858 novel, which I haven't read. Um, lots of incredible sword fighting in that, including including a very memorable one with the uh, Duke, de, Duke de Nevers. I think I pronounced that right. Duke de Nevers is ambushed uh, by lots of people in masks um, near a fountain uh, as he's going home, and incredible sword fight scenes. It's brilliant. Another go-to for fencing is obviously Ridley Scott's first film, The Duelist, which I adore. It's based on the Joseph Conrad short story. Um, fighting in that's a lot more gritty, but, you know, it's still amazing. And the third recommendation, if you can stand it, watch Hawk the Slayer for Bernard Bressel's Hammer Fight, because it's just really good. Um, you know, it's it's not really not really in the same league as The Princess Bride, um, but it does have Jack Plants chewing the scenery like there's no tomorrow. And... If you can, get the Blu-ray and watch with subtitles, because that kind of makes the experience. As for the Ruritanianess of everything, we've got several episodes. I'm going to just, just recap them in the show notes, just so that you can find them. One other thing, then. 
I've been umming and ahhing about starting a Patreon for quite some time. Um, some people have told me I should have done it ages ago. Well, I'm about to. And I wanted to talk about what that would do and what patrons would get. So I'm getting into designing more games now and they're going up on itch. And the beta versions are free. But I'm embarking on a new role-playing game, which is all about fancy masters in a city. And I'm going to be writing it piecemeal. And the plan would be to release something to patrons, if you're interested. Patrons would get early release and they would get regular releases, whereas the general public will see a, um, a finished draft some point. So um, that's the incentive. So, if you're interested... Um, watch this space. It's not up yet, but it will be up shortly, and I will be drawing your attention to that by Twitter and other things. I'm considering other kinds of social media, but I am quitting Facebook for various reasons, And uh, but I, I am considering other alternatives such as Discord and Slack. At the moment, though, I don't see much of a reason to develop more of a social media presence. The podcast is a social media presence. So I'll just say thank you for listening. And uh, music, as always, is by Chris Zabriskie. And until the next episode, see you later. Take care.